Howdy gamers, it's Layton here from Layton Night, the podcast that you're currently listening to in case you accidentally stumbled upon this, in which case I am sorry, but just wanted to let you know that there is a video version of this episode that is up on our Patreon for all tiers. So if you want to join us over there, depending on the tier, you can get all sorts of cool benefits. We do mini-sodes every week. We do some fun videos. Uh, you get access to our fan discord and overall it's a really lovely time and we would love to have you there. So without any further ado, here is the audio version of this episode. So if you want to do the video version, you can go to patreon.com slash late night or not it's really whatever floats your boat. Anyway, episode. This is an important occasion because this is our first all hat recording, which if you're watching the video for this, you can see that I'm wearing a hat, Layton's wearing a hat, and David is wearing a hat. So this is a big day. I felt peer pressured into wearing a hat. I wasn't wearing yeah. one. And then lo and behold, I cannot appear hatless. Yep. Two old guys made you yeah. wear a hat. Is that a real blockbuster hat? It's some company called Dumb Good that also made this oh, beautiful okay, water okay. bottle. They, they like partnered with the last blockbuster that exists. Uh, I love that little documentary, actually. Did you I see never it? watched it, no. No, I haven't seen it yet either. It's cool. I mean, I don't know if it warranted necessarily all that amount of time, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it was very cool to see the story, you know, especially since I grew up renting videos and going to blockbuster. For sure. Yeah, it's very near and dear to my heart. So the documentary is literally about the last store, right? The last blockbuster video. Yes. And what they had to do to kind of keep it up. And I think they have even some calls that they did with the main franchise and stuff to try to keep it. And yeah, there's a lot of things that are very interesting, but it's more the nostalgic part, you know, like something weird for me always, it was the smell of a blockbuster mm -hmm. was very, very particular that I'll never forget it. It was Almost like you got in there and it's like, oh, I'm going to chill now. I'm going to buy really shitty food and I'm going to rent a bunch of movies. Then probably I'm going to return them right after the date and end up paying some more money. Yes, of course. And here's like <laughs> 10 coupons for free movies. Why did we go out of business? <laughs> <laughs> There's also the part that they talk a little bit about why they wouldn't go for the streaming and all that kind of stuff there. That was interesting as well. So Blockbuster never even tried with the streaming? I think there was a proposition and they were saying, oh, no, that's never going to take off, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, can you imagine if one of the big, like, tent poles of major streaming services today was the Blockbuster streaming service? They could wow. have had it. They could have easily. I mean, they have the entire world because there were Blockbusters everywhere. Yeah. They had the people there. It was just a matter of, Doing, investing the right amount of money on technology. Right. Originally, I'm sure you guys remember, although Leighton, you would have been young, Netflix, the whole thing was you can get the really obscure shit, right? You can rent like these DVDs that Blockbuster just didn't have and you'd wait in your queue and you could get all the art films and all the other stuff that Blockbuster just wouldn't even bother with. The long tail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Remember, yeah. 
The whole concept of, hey kids, Netflix was originally, you get discs sent to your home by daddy Netflix. And now, and now. And I remember being so excited about like, oh my God, I can't believe they have whatever, some obscure thing that I've always wanted to see that no, you know, self-respecting video store who wanted to reach a mass market would have, you know, it's not, you know, Kim's video or something like that where you could get everything. It was Blockbuster, so you could just couldn't find half the stuff. I mean, I get it. It's always this kind of slow moving corporate giant thing, but Netflix did the pivot that Blockbuster should have done into streaming real early on. Yeah. They were definitely pioneers. And when that happened, I mean, it was just a no-brainer that everything was going to go there. When that happened, actually, it was not Netflix because I was living in the UK and it was Love Film. I don't know if when you were in the UK, Ryan. No. So it was called Love Film. It was not Netflix. And Uh uh, you would add these weird DVDs and you would never get them, ever. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like the UK. It was totally worthless to have these weird movies on your cube. I don't even think they actually had them. <laughs> so they would just list them and they would just never show up. And I never got those movies. Huh. No, I've never even heard of that. And maybe it was still a thing when I was there. Remind me, when did you live there? I've been in L.A. for nine years. It was the nine years before that. And I've been in L.A. for just about seven years. So that wasn't that big a difference. It probably still existed and I just never... Never used it. Yeah, I think it did because it was huge. Everybody had love film that I knew. Huh. Because you didn't have to pay the extra money if you didn't return it. But the thing is, probably the people who got those weird movies, they never returned them in the first place. Well, you know what? Actually, when we were there, we never bought a TV. We just streamed on our laptops. And that was partly so we wouldn't have to pay for the TV license. Right. Yeah, I remember the TV license in the UK. Hold on. You got to pay for a TV license? Do you have to take your TV provisional? (laughs) So, David, tell me if this is accurate. You know, the BBC is a public company, right? It's not a private company. It is owned by or funded by or whatever by the government. I don't know the specifics, but it's paid for by the public. And part of the thing that pays for that is a license to own and operate a television set. Yes. And so every year you have to pay, what was it, like 100 pounds or something? 120 pounds or so, yeah. Yeah. Per TV, it was not per household. It yeah. was per television that you had in your home. That's right. But here was the thing. So if you didn't have a TV, you just filled out a form online saying, hey, I don't own a TV. I'm not going to pay my TV license. So if you didn't own a TV, you didn't have to pay it. But if they checked, which they could do. They could knock on your door and they couldn't come in your house without permission. But if you opened up your door to them and they said, hey, can we come in and look for TVs? By the way, you can say no. And then they'll be like, okay, moving on. But if they open up the door to your house and they see a TV, they'll be like, aha, (laughs) there's your TV. And then the fine is pretty big. I can't remember what it was, but it was like a lot. The number matters to me right now, and I need to know. I think it was like in the thousand range. Yeah. I remember I got scared because we forgot to pay the license once. Mm-hmm. And we were scared that somebody was going to come. I didn't know that you were allowed to say no, actually. Right. I think most people don't. <laughs> but if I would have opened the door, because when we started there, I had a studio apartment. Uh-huh. No, you open the door and there was the TV, probably the biggest thing in the room. <laughs> it's right there, yeah. Because it was, and again, this shows the age, it was not a flat 
screen TV. It was one of those gigantic it's a CRT, yeah, belly back TVs, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, it was huge. So I would have opened the door and they would have seen it immediately. Yeah, yeah. After that, we paid it. We got a letter, and that's how we remembered. Oh yeah, we got a letter every year saying. Did you forget to pay your TV license? And we went online, filled out the little form saying we don't own a TV. Okay, fine. But that seemed like the most British thing is the TV license enforcement bureau, which you can just be like, don't come in. And they have to be like, yeah, all right, makes sense. <laughs> I feel like that's very bad sitcom material. It just feels like in the wake of The Office, every single show is like, it's a bunch of goofy people, but they work at X place. Yep, TV license enforcers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Michael Scott of TV license enforcers. Yeah. <laughs> so my reaction when I heard about it, which was not until we moved there, Leighton, was the same as yours, where I was like, excuse me, what? <laughs> you, you have to pay for a what? Much like when people in other countries hear about co-pays with our <laughs> medical insurance, they're like, but you, wait, what? But you already pay for insurance, right? <laughs> Yeah, there, there was de there's definitely some cognitive dissonance. It's certainly weird, but I am a big fan of the BBC. I mean, I think they do pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. So the way that I understand it works is they are theoretically a nonprofit inside the UK, mm -hmm. but they can make money outside the UK. So there's another company called, I think, BBC World or something like that. Yeah, so yeah. all the shows outside the UK, they can make money and that actually feeds into the machine. Oh, that's interesting. Look, I pay for Doctor Who. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I will buy the seasons. I just bought the new season. Is either of you a Doctor Who watcher? I am not, actually. Uh, recovering. Yeah. It's straight up bad. I mean, it is not good. And I didn't grow up watching it. I only started watching it with the Russell Davies reboot. Yeah. I've literally watched every episode since they restarted it, however many years ago now. Um, and it's like... There are isolated episodes that are amazing, but on the surface level, it's kind of good. But if you think about why anything happens or why characters do anything, it's the worst thing you've ever seen. Just nothing makes any sense. For a show that involves time travel, they do not give a single shit about continuity or timelines. Oh, and the physicist goes off on Doctor Who. <laughs> it's not even a physics thing. It's like a storytelling thing. Of course. You know, there's no coherent time travel philosophy. They must know it, but it, it is definitely one of those shows where in order to enjoy it, you have to totally turn off your brain. You cannot think about it. Oh, like most people who enjoy media? Yeah, I guess. Well, the other thing is it's actually a children's show. Like it is straight up for kids. Originally, it was supposed to be educational. This was its whole thing. You know, its original mandate was an educational show. They're going to go through history and learn stuff. Oh, really? I didn't know that. I thought it was a sci-fi thing straight up. No, part of its original mandate was to teach. Wow. Hey, kids, you want to learn something? Children in gas masks. Pretty creepy, right? Yeah. Also, there are these robots from the future. Oh, I guess we're not learning anything now. <laughs> but let me ask you something, because I've asked this question to other Doctor Who fans, and I never get a good answer. Okay. If you need to start, where do you start? You could do fine by starting with any of the David Tennant. Okay ones. That's a really solid run and he rules. He's very fun. He's carrying that fucking show on his back. <laughs> like a lot of things with the David Tennant stuff, it gets straight up stupid for a while. Okay, I have to say, starting with, uh, <laughs> this is not one of my prouder moments, starting with the rebooted Doctor Who, 
I really didn't know anything about it except it's some nerdy British thing that a lot of my friends like. And they, you know, grew up with the Tom Baker and, you know, that like 70s era, 80s who. And I watched maybe six or seven of the new episodes, like the Christopher Eccleston episodes. And there are all these mysteries about what's doing what, you know, some weird thing happens. And about six episodes in, I realized that the answer to every mystery was it's aliens. And I turned to my friend I was watching with and I was like, is it always aliens? And he's like, yeah, that's (laughs) the point. It's always aliens. It's never not aliens. And I was continually surprised by, oh, it's a new alien. Oh, it's a new alien. Oh, it's a new. They're always fucking aliens. Just not catching on that it's alien of the week. Not catching on that it's Alien of the Week until many episodes in. And I was like, oh, makes a lot of sense. Now I realize it's just a bunch of different alien races and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, that took a little while. I was surprised even because there were stores in the UK dedicated to Doctor Who to sell just Doctor Who memorabilia. At least I saw two while I was living. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the other thing I saw is at least in the last, I'm going to say maybe six years or so, I would go to Comic-Con and I would rarely see the phone cabin or, or that kind of stuff here and there. Yeah, yeah. But I think since maybe seven years ago or so, or a little less maybe, then it suddenly caught up here in the U.S. Yeah. I don't know why that happened or if there was a network that was actually broadcasting the show, but you started to see a lot more people cosplaying yeah. with Doctor Who stuff. I think there are a couple things at work. One, I mean, it used to just be, at least in the States, on PBS and then, like everything else British, you know, if you wanted to see Monty Python, you couldn't just turn on the TV and watch it. You had to get the right thing. But the other thing is they started casting hotter doctors. And once you get into, like, <laughs> David Tennant and Matt Smith, Matt Smith is fucking hot. That hold guy on, hold, hot. hold on. <laughs> hold the fuck what? up. What? You're using Matt Smith as the, like, this is when the doctors got hot? I think so. I think that's an attractive guy. No? Matt Smith is a downgrade from David Tennant. What? Oh, no. I totally disagree with that. (laughs) Okay. Matt Smith is potato man. But I will say Peter Capaldi is hotter than both of them. Peter Capaldi, I love. I'll also argue Christopher Eccleston is hot. Everyone is, of course, entitled to their wrong opinions. (laughs) Jodie Whittaker is definitely hot. I do agree yes, with that. But She's David gorgeous. Tennant is hotter than Matt Smith. I don't think so. I don't think that's true. Wow. You know, Brian, what we sound like right now? Every Tumblr user in the year 2012. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine if David Tennant and Matt Smith kissed? <laughs> Brian, you weren't there. You were not in the super avenging Hulak Tumblr trenches. It was uh-huh. a grim time. Oh. <laughs> Layton, I want to hear about this. So you were a Whovian when you were little. Not like little, like 13 to 15. Like teenage. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So tell me about teenage Layton's Doctor Who experience. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that reaction, you realize, has now cemented my desire to hear about this all the more. Get ready for questions. Just to set the stage, imagine me on like a folding chair in like a really grim like gymnasium of a church and I'm lighting cigarette after cigarette as I tell you this. (laughs) (laughs) I I really thought you were going to say that's how you were watching it. I absolutely (laughs) thought that's where that was going. And I was like, holy shit, that's some hard living. (laughs) 
No, I uh, started reading TV tropes when I was like 12 or 13. And then TV tropes became the portal to a very specific brand of 2010s like geekdom, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I was really into Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog and a very Potter musical and Dr. Who and like Sherlock eventually. But it was a hopscotch from TV tropes to Tumblr eventually. So you were a big Moffat head. (sighs) At the time, yes, but I truly cannot touch that statement. I understand. He's too deep. He's too intellectual. He's too confusing for you. Too good of a writer. It's impossible to say anything about the man's story construction, writing, anything that's ever come out of his mouth. Makes so much sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Sherlock was really, really big into Sherlock. Just lots of Marvel stuff. I can't go down the Tumblr hole. (laughs) I can't do it, Brian. I want to hear the Doctor Who stuff. David Tennant was the big one for you. David Tennant and Rose, like that was all. That was just, you know, doomsday, et cetera, whatever. Sad, mm-hmm. slow, badly color graded gifts of them staring at each other longingly. That was my shit. Can I tell uh-huh. you almost anything about the show? No. The very yeah. first episode I watched was, I think, maybe considered one of the worst ones, but I Ooh. can't believe that I watched it and was like, yeah, I'll watch more of this. <laughs> to me, the wildest thing about Doctor Who is, again, it is bad. It is a bad show, but it is compelling and fun to watch and interesting. And the storytelling sucks. There's always some character of the week which is underdeveloped, poorly written, generally pretty well acted, I have to say, generally, except for all of Torchwood. But <laughs> there's a lot to love about it. Again, as long as you don't think about it too hard, which makes it a great kids show. Mm-hmm. Wow, it has lasted, what, like 52 years, probably even more, right? Yeah, I think the first episode was 64, maybe? 63, something like that? Yeah. Wow. It's coming up to 60 years. And the wild thing, too, is some of those episodes are just lost forever, right? There are early Who episodes they just don't have. Oh, really? Oh, Yeah. Oh, because they used to delete the tapes to re-record some stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, I heard that from other shows. I think there's lists of everything, but there are some older episodes that, you know, it might be in some old person is going to die who used to be an exec at the BBC or whatever, and they're going to find these tapes in their basement, and, you know, there they go. The very first episode of Doctor Who I ever watched was uh, Love and Monsters. It's the 10th episode of the second series. It's the one with Electric Light Orchestra, the cover band. Do you remember this one? <laughs> no. Hold on. There's a cover <laughs> band of electric like orchestra? Now you have David's interest. <laughs> That's what the episode is about. Wow. If I recall correctly, like the doctor literally doesn't even show up until the end. It's like it's almost self-contained thing. I don't remember this at all. But the like alien in the episode was designed by a nine-year-old who won a competition. <laughs> like, that's fine. That doesn't matter. Just the rest of the episode is so bad. And the girl who plays Moaning Myrtle in the Harry Potter movies is in it and she gets stuck in a concrete slab she is the love interest of like the main character of this episode whose name is mr blue sky yes exactly no way wow. <laughs> no, I, I made that up i don't know do but. it a bit <laughs> but they make like a very explicit joke about how they have a really active love life which is like oh he's shoving his dick in the concrete slab moaning myrtle girl's face okay wow And then I watched that and was like, gee whiz, there's more of this? Yes, please. Sign me up, said 13-year-old Layton. 13-year-old Layton and 24-year-old Layton love Electric Light Orchestra. Yeah, well, they're great. Surely this is what the rest of the show is about. I mean, who doesn't love ELO? I mean, yeah. 
And thanks to Guardians, I think a lot more people now know about them because yeah. of that opening credit sequence to Guardians 2, right? It's genius. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, did they use Mr. Blue Sky in a really ham-fisted way? I think they used it in a great way, actually. I think it's genuinely a great opening credits That's good. sequence. Do you guys like the later records as well as the ones from the 70s and stuff, the ones that have Jeff Lynne has done on his own with some other guys? I don't even know enough to say. Like, it's yeah, one of those same. bands, I just know, like, songs here and there, oh, but man. I couldn't tell you about the different eras. They're great. Jeff Lynne is a freaking genius. Yeah. Okay, this is a good time to introduce our guest because we're really in your wheelhouse, David. <laughs> so everybody, this is Late Night with Brian Wecht. Over here we have Leighton Gray. What's up? That one was Brian Wecht. Hi. Mystery guest. Would you care to introduce yourself? I am David Calcano. I'm a writer and director in an animation studio called Fantunes. And I've had the enormous pleasure to work with Brian in the NSP graphic novel and a bunch of other stuff, which is freaking amazing to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, we're glad to have you. So, David, I am never sure how to pronounce your last name because I know you changed it. Yeah, well, I was forced to change it. Oh, you're forced to? Well, I mean, the Enya doesn't exist here. Right, right. Actually, in the UK, which is the first time that I changed it. Right. And the worst thing is that I completely destroyed the last name because the last name originally, it's an Italian last name. So it should be Gino Calcagno. Uh-huh, yeah, you know? right. So my ancestors came to Venezuela in South America, which is where I was born. And then that was changed to the Enya, which is the end with the little wiggly thing on top. And then I migrated because the country went to bonkers. And when I migrated to the UK, I had to change my last name when I became a British citizen to just the end because the end doesn't exist. Yeah. And that's the very boring history of my last name. <laughs> so do you ever say Cocaño anymore or no? I do when I'm talking to anybody that speaks Spanish. Mm -hmm. Because if they already say Calcano, it's kind of weird to come back saying, oh, it's Calcano. Right, right, like, right. Like, oh, he's such a dick to say, just try to get the pronunciation <laughs> correct. Yeah. So, you know, it's that blurry line, you know. So if I introduce myself, I will say with the Ñ to anybody who speaks Spanish. Yeah. Otherwise, I will say with the N. Yeah. I'm never sure. I mean, look, originally, my name is closer to Vecht. Oh, wow. You know, or, or something like that. And certainly when I lived in Europe... I was, you know, Herr Vecht to a lot of people, Herr Professor Vecht. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the first time I was in Germany and someone was like, oh, Herr Professor Vecht, I was like, hell yeah. Hell yeah. You say that name. Awesome. You immediately become a villain. Ah, uh, yes, absolutely. When's your doomsday device ready? <laughs> I may have talked about this before. My favorite thing about being in academics in Germany. Have I mentioned the two titles thing? Have I ever talked about this? Maybe on like one of the first 10 episodes, maybe. Yeah. So if you have a joint appointment in two different departments, they will call you Dr. Doctor. Really? So if you're like a joint math physics professor, you're in the math department and you're in the physics department, they will call you Dr. Dr. Wecht or Wecht in my case. Or if you're a dual professor... You can be professor, professor, whatever. Or if you haven't been promoted to professor in one department, but you have been in the other, you could be doctor, professor. So, <laughs> doctor, professor. Uh, oh my God. Wow. Yeah. The first time I was in Germany, I saw a seminar sign for like a seminar by professor and professor, professor, whoever. 
I was like, what the fuck is happening in this country? It was so great. I love it. If people aren't doing the Thompson Twins Dr. Doctor song at you constantly, something has gone wrong. Well, that's exactly the first thing I thought when I saw it. I was like, give me the news. (laughs) But anyway, yeah. So as David said, we've been working together. It's been like several years now. It's probably coming up on three, four years, right? Yes. So I'm at Zappa, you know, Frank's son. I forget what the connection was there, but we went over to his office and we're chatting with him, me and Danny and Brent. And while we were there, David and I forget who else was with you. can't remember who else it was, actually. We were working on the Frank Zappa hologram animations, basically. Yeah. That's why I was there. Right. And you showed us, was it Montana? It was Montana. Yeah, right. The visuals basically were all done with a dental floss. So we had to tell the story with only one piece of line throughout eight minutes. Yes. The dental floss thing makes sense if you know the song. But it's not just a random thing. Like, it's relevant to the song. And so we met there at Amit's office, and then you reached out to Brent in what he still maintains is one of the very few emails he's gotten that he wanted to respond to. <laughs> and, and then we, you know, you had some ideas for NSP, and we just kind of took off from there. And so you guys did the coloring book and the graphic novel, and we're working on volume two right now. Yeah. We have so many of the same passions for music and art and comedy. So one of the big things that we have in common, especially you and Danny, David, is Rush. You guys have collaborated with Rush on a bunch of stuff now. Yes, yes. That, that's know. been a blessing, actually. Well, everything it's been, to be honest. Yeah. But I told you where I'm from, so this is not something that happens often. I still cannot believe that I've worked with Rush, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I picture little David growing up in Venezuela. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I had my Discman, man, and I would save money to get my CDs. Everything now, it's easy for you to listen to anything you want. We had to work for it, you know? It's like, okay, you love this band, you work for it, save money, even if it is just saving your allowance or whatever it was. Yeah. You have to wait, then buy the album or try to get somebody who has the album to tape it and then you could listen to it. And I think there's a treasure of whenever you got that music, it's like, holy shit, this yeah. is unreal. And you never forget it from there right. on. Did you understand the lyrics growing up? No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I learned English with rock magazines which is not a great source of, uh, of, of knowledge, <laughs> particularly because it was not Rolling Stone. It was something like Metal Edge and <laughs> magazines like that that were, you know, not the greatest journalism that you could buy. I learned with that and I learned adding subtitles to movies. So I would watch the movie with English subtitles. And after I knew everything by memory, I started to understand the language. Friends, actually, is one of the best English courses I ever had, you know? Wow. That's awesome. I am an engineer, actually, originally. I don't know if I told you this, Brian. You did, yeah. But say it again, please. When I was growing up, I was a teenager, I wanted to be a writer. And I had my band, of course, and I did shitty independent records, and we played in bars and all of that. And I told my mom that I was going to go to L.A. to play in a band. And my mom almost had a heart attack there. And at that time, and I don't know if things have changed, but if you were not a doctor or an engineer, it's like you were slacking off and you were going to die of hunger. Mm -hmm. 
in reality, there was not a lot of industry in Venezuela to be able to go and be a musician or be a writer and stuff like that. So my mom said, look, you're going to study <laughs> engineering or something <laughs> along those lines, because otherwise you're going to die. Of I was a good kid and I just went off and actually studied systems engineering, which was not something I loved. Then the country started to go really badly after Chavez and everything started to go downhill horrifically. And I was offered a job in engineering in the UK. I still had my dream and everything, but it was just not possible to survive and also achieve a dream at the same time. So I went to the UK and I was working there in consulting, super corporate. Yeah. And this was in London, right? This was in London. I met wonderful people. And I don't see that time of my life necessarily in a bad way in any way, because I worked in Spain, I worked in Norway, I worked in Chile, I worked all over the place. So it gave me a lot of traveling experience. And my wife was always coming with me. So it was cool. But I was not happy. I would wake up in the morning completely depressed for what I was going to do, which, you know, you end up working 80% of your life. You know, 80% of your life is probably work. So you got to do something that you love to be happy. And I got the residency in the UK and I started studying screenwriting at night while I was working in consulting. And that was great. It was hard. I got my little diploma and I talked to my boss to work part time. And I told him the truth that I want to work in animation and I want to do this. And he was like, you know what, do it. I'd rather work with you at least part time and we'd be happy to have you. Then I realized that I was not doing either of those things well because I was not doing what I needed to do at the consulting work and I was not doing enough to have a studio that pretty much had nothing other than a business card or probably an email. So I quit my job and I started to do cold calls, which is something I would never recommend to anybody. I don't think you've told me this part before, yeah. Cold calls is the most humiliating thing. <laughs> it's the worst. <laughs> that yes. you could ever do. People told me, asshole, fucker. And even when you're trying to be nice, you know? Yeah. I just wanted to show what we had and all that kind of stuff, what we wanted to do with the studio and try to get a job. There were months, months and months trying to get a job until there was a movie company that hired me to write and produce some comic strips to promote a movie called Anuvahood or something like that in the UK. That was my first job. And I think it paid like 30 pounds or something or 35 pounds. Mm -hmm. And well, I mean, at least I got a job. And then through a connection, through a common friend in Latin America, he started to do some commercials for a pharmacy and he hired me to write for that. So that kind of at least started to get some income. But I completely blew all my savings entirely just because I wanted to do something that I loved. And, you know, I was not a kid either. You know, right. so every day I would think, holy shit, am I blowing up my life trying to chase this goose that I don't even know if I'm capable of doing, which is super, super scary. By the way, I don't know if this is way too dramatic for the podcast. No, this is amazing. <laughs> Honestly, this is one of the things I wanted to talk to you about because I think this is a really inspiring and, and cool story. Yeah. Okay. Because you guys are super funny and I'm here now telling this, oh my God. This is why I like this show because it becomes whatever it needs to be. So please. 100%. Okay. So 
we were in the UK and we started to publish on the Fantunes account parodies of music and graphics, which was my dream about the company. I've been a sick music fan ever since I can remember. And combining that with art and with animation was always what I wanted to do. So originally we had a series of a fan that would chase his favorite artists and every time he would get close to them, he would die. We started to do a bunch of things around the character, but mostly we started to publish, again, uh, an album cover as a serial box. Mm-hmm. We started to kind of play around with the cover art and then start blending it with food and pop culture in general. And that started to take off really nicely. And I've always been, as a music fan, I've been jealous of all the cool merch that you get with Star Wars and you get with Marvel and DC. And music always seems to be, oh, get the T-shirt with the square of the album cover. And it's always the same T-shirt over and over again. And there's so much that you could do with music. I mean, honestly, merch and crap that I would love to buy that was not available, you know? Yeah. So that's what we were publishing, what we were publishing there. And we started to slowly accumulate a little following there. And I thought, well, you know, maybe we should do a Kickstarter, see if anybody would pay two cents for whatever we're doing online. When I decided to do the Kickstarter, I was already here in the States. Mm-hmm. So by that time, you had quit the UK and moved to LA. The way it happened, just to pedal back a little bit, I came to Comic-Con and I had a lot of great reaction with people. And I was like, I kind of think I need to be here, mm-hmm. you know? Which, if you think about it, I think about my mom, poor her, to be honest, (laughs) you know? First of all, right, I quit my job and my mom and my dad, because they did not necessarily understand this kind of weird thing that I do. Mm -hmm. My dad is not with me anymore, but my mom, I don't think she quite understands what I do yet. Yeah, right. (laughs) So anyways, I not only quit my engineering job, I am actually moving to another country without having anything that would say, oh, you're going to get a salary every month or whatever. So Mm -hmm. she was probably throwing up every day and I would never know. Right. But anyway, so I come here and we started again from scratch. And that's when I decided to do the Kickstarter. And to my surprise, I honestly thought we were going to get two dimes for it. We got 11 times what we asked for. Oh, wow. I was amazed, and I still am amazed, so we did the very best book that we could ever do. This Kickstarter was not official. (laughs) I was not working with Rush. So Mm -hmm. they could have just called Kickstarter and say, hey, this motherfucker who's actually (laughs) using our name and trying to profit on our thing, please take it down. It's embarrassing. What was the thing specifically you were raising money for? Oh, it was a 180-page book. I still remember the freaking pitch. A 180-page <laughs> book with art of all kinds. So basically, we would do single-panel comics about Rush. We would do all the album covers as cereal boxes. We did Rush pinups. We did everything that you can freaking imagine. We did movie posters based on the records. Yeah. All pop culture-related stuff, basically. Yeah. Again, I mean, the Kickstarter... Mike Portnoy from Dream Theater, he shared it. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know the guy. I mean, he just did it out of goodwill, I guess. I wrote to every freaking magazine that I I could could get an email. And Mm -hmm. actually, Classic Rock in the UK published about it. And Prog Magazine, too. Oh, wow. So we got press, which I was not expecting, although I did the work because we had no PR or or anything, really. My office was 
in my closet in my apartment <laughs> yeah. in Sherman Oaks. So anyway, so that went really well. So when we had the book, we delivered it to the fans. The fans really liked the book. We were very, very proud of it. And I started to try to see how the hell did I, how could I get this to the band? With the art for that, who did the art? You and... So basically, I wrote the book. I did, I think, two pieces inside the book, but there were about 20 different artists that we hired mm -hmm. to do the artwork. And I haven't said this, and I should have said it before. I would have never been able to do anything without my wife, mm -hmm. with Linda, Linda Otero. Yeah, she's the best. She's the boss of the studio, and she handles schedules and makes sure everything gets delivered on time and handles money. Everything I do really badly, and we would have been, I mean, out of business many, many years ago if I was in charge. So she helped me all the way through to kind of do all this work. And when we had the book in our hands, you know, with all that beautiful artwork, we were very proud of it. We tried to contact the band in many different ways. I didn't get responses and stuff. I don't know if you guys have ever seen these Monsters of Rock cruises that are all over. Mm -hmm. We were doing art for one of the cruises and there was an MC. His name is Eddie Trunk. Oh, sure. He used to have a show in BH1 called That Metal Show. Yeah, big metal guy. Yeah. Exactly. So I was like, well, I mean, I'm going to try to give him the book. So I talked to the cruise guy and he had a show in Orange County. He gave me his email. We exchanged emails and stuff. And I didn't want to be pushy and I didn't set up a time. So my wife and me, we went there. We went there at one o'clock and he would never respond on when the actual meeting was. So we waited and waited eight hours and we were still there. I told Linda, look, let's go. And she was like, fuck no, we're staying in this <laughs> ship until that guy appears. I did the same thing with physics professors, by the way, when I was a grad student. I remember just being in Boston and walking into Harvard and being like, well, I hope Professor Vafa in that case uh, is around and he was in meetings all day and I just waited outside his office hoping to grab a conversation with him. I've done the same thing. Yeah. Oh, man, it was tough because I've done that many times. This is actually nothing against Eddie because we didn't arrange time. So I was just yeah, yeah. there waiting until he was available. So then he said, oh, yeah, I'm here. Come through the back door. And I'm like, I don't know where the back door is. <laughs> I mean, you guys don't know me very well, but I'm not the kind of guy who would sneak in into a place. No, yes. I know you well enough to know that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I asked the guy, hey, I'm David Calcano. Am I on the list? Uh, no, you're not on the list. Kind of like the almost famous movie, right? Yeah, yeah. Get out of here. I was like, well, what the fuck am I going to do? And uh, I actually snuck in behind the guy. <laughs> it's surprising how easy it is to get backstage. Yeah do some concerts when you really want to do it. <laughs> By the way, I just have to say, not at Ninja Sex Party concerts. Don't try it. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back and he was there and he was, hey, David, it was very nice. And we talked for a little bit. There were a bunch of people that were really, really drunk on that backstage. So I think he was very happy to see me. So we started to have a chat and I showed him the book and he absolutely loved the book. And by his own will, he actually wrote to Rush Management. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I didn't ask for it. 
I think I should have asked. I don't think I would have had the balls to to ask. It's hard. It hurts to ask that stuff for sure. Yeah, it's not very easy. But he did it and uh, he connected me with them. And that kind of started the thing a little bit. I didn't hear anything until a couple of weeks after. I sent a few cereal boxes because that's some of the stuff that we do. So we do, uh, oh shit. (laughs) 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 We do little cereal boxes like this, you know, with with the bands and stuff. It's adorable. By the way, David has literally the coolest shit in the world in his house. It is, you <laughs> know, you. every art book, every animation book, all these cool figures and everything. It is an amazing place full of treasures. <laughs> a lot of money spent over the years. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so I sent a few cereal boxes that we did and stuff like that. And then suddenly about two months after, we get an email from their official store that they want to sell our book. Wow. And that was unreal. I could not freaking believe that they were doing that. Then after that, I asked them for a meeting with management in Toronto. Uh, I had a lot of ideas that I wanted to do, and I met their manager, Peggy Ciccone. I think I owe a lot of my career to her. And she was super open to a lot of these concepts, and we started to work together from there on. That's so great. And you met all three of them and talked to all three of them. I never met Neil actually. Only through correspondence, I met Getty and I corresponded with Alex. Wow. Yes. That's incredible. So yeah, I met Getty here actually. And it's it's just freaking amazing. I have something he wrote on his book. It says, David, I love your work. And it's like, okay, I can't retire. (laughs) That's it. You know, I don't need anything else. What I like about that band specifically is the band members are very down to earth. Mm-hmm. They're not the type of band that, oh yeah, they got so high that they crashed the car into trees and, you know, they killed seven people. There's none of that kind of drama. I think their drama was probably more around the creative and trying to try to get the best record that they could ever do. Yeah, And they were role models for me because... I was never the guy who would get into cocaine and stuff like that. And there were other bands that I really loved that would do that kind of stuff. But as people, they were always role models for me, the three of them. When they were coming up in the 70s, that was the uncool thing to do, right? Yes. I don't know if they're exactly straight edge or whatever, but, you know, to not be out there partying in the Studio 54s and all that bullshit. And what's very interesting to me now is that... I feel like with most of the artists I know and love, that's kind of the default. It's not like they never have a drink or whatever, but most people seem pretty chill and willing to do the nerdy stuff and aren't out there raging in the way that a popular band in the 70s or 80s would. Like the Motley Crue lifestyle is not the popular one these days. So I feel like they were trendsetters in that way. (laughs) Trendsetters by not being dicks. Yes, and and by being nerds, like they would like go back to their hotel rooms and read Tolkien and shit, right? Totally. I mean, to be fair, they also partied a lot. They didn't party like Motley Crue, you know? Right. To be fair, nobody partied like Motley Crue. <laughs> I don't even know how many people those guys killed. Like, it's a bunch. <laughs> I'm not even exaggerating either, right? Like, they legitimately killed people. Elaborate. I'm not up on my Motley Crue murder history. You know what? Go watch The Dirt. Look, let's put it this way. If the official Motley Crue movie features a couple people they killed, 
the one that's <laughs> sanctioned by Motley Crue, probably in reality, there might have been a few more. Yeah, that was the fashion. I mean, not killing people, but yeah. that lifestyle was the fashionable thing at the time. Nothing seems less appealing to me than... Killing people? Well, no, actually, <laughs> that seems fine. Um, no, like that hard partying gets so drunk you can barely move. Who was it? Was it um, Nikki Six? They had to chain to the bed so he wouldn't, like go off on benders and disappear. One of the guys in Motley Crue, wow. they literally had to handcuff to a bed in the hotel room so he wouldn't go missing before the show. It is a style of living that, certainly if you have a family, like, what the fuck are you doing? And it also just seems awful. I mean, you must feel like shit all the time. Yeah. And obviously there's addiction and other issues that these people are are dealing with, but uh, ooh, it just... it. Doesn't sound fun. And also, Brian, you and I, as we've well established, we both hate having fun going places, standing in loud noises. So already <laughs> we might be a little biased. Absolutely. If you would watch MTV, which is, I grew up with that. By the way, MTV was not in Venezuela at the time. I had a friend who had a gigantic antenna <laughs> and they would steal the satellite thing to oh get. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. And he had MTV. I had Betamax tapes to tape the freaking videos to try to watch them at home, you know? Oh, I definitely taped a bunch of MTV videos. You know, well, the ones that always got me were the Weird Al takeovers when he did Al TV. Did you ever see these? Yes. My absolute favorite. So for whatever fucking reason, once a year or so, they would let Al have like a three-hour slot where he took over MTV and just roasted them for <laughs> hours. It was so fun. And it was really subversive and fun. Oh, those LTV segments were the best. Very lo-fi, yeah. Very lo-fi. And he would do these things. He still shows these at concerts where he'll like take an official interview with whatever, you know, Prince or someone. And whenever they cut away to the interviewer, he'll splice in his own fake questions and then cut to the responses so it looks like the famous person is answering a stupid question. There's some comedic genius stuff that happens. That sounds pretty future, too. Like, what years would this have been for MTV? It went on for a while, but definitely mid-80s and, and beyond. It might have even been 85, 84. Yeah, that sounds ahead of its time by, like, a lot. Yeah. Do you know if those are available to watch on the internet anywhere? I don't know if they're all available, but you can definitely find some of them on YouTube. It is well worth checking out. I'm sure there's people who tape that. Oh, especially if they tape it and it looks like shit. That's the true experience of watching <laughs> yeah. taped material. David, Al seems like a natural thing for you guys. He seems like Fantoon's material. Let me put it that way. I would love to work with Weird Al. Yeah. We, I would love to do it. It's just a matter of finding a way to work with him. What he represents, not just his sense of humor, but his persona as a human being, it would be great to do a graphic novel of his story you know oh, it would best. be beautiful yeah. and he has so many people that adore both the work and the person that it's just it's amazing i've talked about this on the show before absolutely one of my heroes for music and comedy and the times that i've, I've met him just the nicest person the kindest sweetest gentlest guy so real so down to earth like i could not yeah. Say enough good things about this guy. So another the thing that you and I bonded over is the Zappa stuff. Yes. Because we're both big Zappa fans and you've done 
a bunch of, obviously not with Frank himself, who died in the 92, was it? 94? Around that time. But you've worked with the estate and done a bunch of official Zappa things. Yeah, we did a Frank Zappa coloring book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we worked on the uh, on the hologram tour, you know, which is one of the things that I'm most proud that we've done at the studio. It was fantastic because every song that we worked on, it was a different animation style. Mm-hmm. So one was 2D, the other one we did cut out. We did the Montana one that was just one line telling the whole story. It was super cool, yeah. Um, we did one with newspapers and with a great song uh, from Frank, Trouble Every Day is called. Oh, that's a good one, yeah. Uh, it's, it was amazing because on that particular song, you hear the lyrics and you feel that you are in... 2021 or whatever we are now. And it's a song that has been done since the early 60s or something. It's on Freak Out, right? Yes. Ahmed obviously was the creative director on this, but I proposed the idea to start the song with uh, the Martin Luther King speech, which we had to get permission and all that stuff. And they had to love the concept. I had to write a letter to the estate of Martin Luther King so that they get the concept because me coming from Venezuela, they understood what we were trying to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Because that song specifically talks about the LA riots, the Watts riots. Yeah. And we were still under Trump at the time and things were not particularly amazing from that era. So I thought it was very, very ballsy for Ahmed to kind of put that concept forward, given how divided the country was at the time. And the song would finish in something very, very soft and melancholic, and we would have the names of people that had died with uh, hate crime. Uh, Mm. All the names would appear on screen. It was so beautiful to see that, and I don't mean to depress the audience once again. No, no, it's fine. I think that show, if it continues, will introduce a lot of people to Frank's music because there was so much art into it. I think the name Hologram Tour, I think it doesn't help because he's not a guy in 3D just kind of recreating the guy that is dead. It sounds like a weird gimmick. Yes. Right. Yeah. Exactly. There were some songs, don't get me wrong, that actually had the full 3D, but I worked on seven or eight songs and look, we had Frank singing from a toilet in Cut Out. We had Frank as a constructed with one line with the dental floss. We had a version of Frank made with newspaper. I mean, we did all these different versions, which was a lot of what he represented. He was so artistic and so open. You see every album cover is freaking different. Yeah, yeah. There's not a single album cover that would look anything like the next one. Mm -hmm. And same with his music. I mean, if you play different records from the 70s and from the 80s to anybody who has never heard of Frank Zappa, they would never believe that he's the same guy. Yeah. Do you know Zappa at all, Layden? I was just about to ask where the good place to start is. Okay, so it depends on who you ask. My favorite stuff is he had this incredible, basically big band that he worked with a bunch in the 70s and then again in the 80s. But Hot Rats is a really good place to start. And please tell me what you think of these choices, David. If you go Hot Rats, Waka Jawaka, Grand Wazoo, I always forget, is it Grand or Great? Great. Great. Yeah. There was three really dope big band albums from the 70s. And then that 
some version of that band kind of comes back in the 80s. And there's this great album called The Best Band You Never Heard in Your Life from his 88 tour, which is really fucking awesome. And then for me, because I like weird classical stuff, one of his last albums is this thing called The Yellow Shark, which he doesn't play at all on it, but it's a contemporary classical ensemble in the early 90s. And they do these like bananas good arrangements of his songs for it's like a 20 ish person classical ensemble. And the level of musicianship is just unbelievable. I mean, you know, the end of his career, he was writing a lot on computer and was writing stuff that could not be performed by humans, even the incredible humans he was already playing with. And somehow they arranged a bunch of these and humans played them. Wow. And the one I'm thinking of specifically, David, is The Ruth is Sleeping from that album, which is just this fucking insane mallet piece. It blows my mind, the performances on that. A little bit also more context to Leighton. The lyrics, he was completely insane. He would be very, very funny. I mean, he was the very dark humor. This is not dark, but I always love the title, Why Does It Hurt When I Pee? (laughs) And then he would go on and off with that. And he would always challenge the status quo in the government. He was always fighting for freedom of speech and things like that on the albums and music, calling bullshit on a lot of the people when they try to censor a lot of the music that was going on at the time. So I I think he was a great composer and a great thinker at the same time. Yeah. Other ones that you can check out, we're only in it for the money is a really, I mean, that's like one of the classics, basically his response to Sgt. Pepper's. Apostrophe and overnight sensation. Those are both great too. Yeah. For my personal opinion, there's some stuff in the 80s, which is pretty hard to take. Oh, same here. There is stuff I don't understand. Yeah. The humor gets edgy in a bad way. Mm. Oh, really? Oh, I think so. You know, as much as I hate to say it, it comes across as kind of misogynistic a bunch. Like, (laughs) he's not doing himself any favors in the 80s. There's a bunch of stuff that I can't really take. And that's actually when I first started listening. That's the first stuff I heard. So much like our Doctor Who conversation. There was Mm -hmm. something in it where I was like, okay, clearly I'm kind of missing something here. So I'm going to keep digging. And then eventually found all the hot rats and all that other stuff. Listen, you had me at Hot Rats. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's an incredible <laughs> album title, so. My main Zappa stuff that I really love is all the instrumental stuff. Those are my favorite ones, hands down. Well, there's a song called Peaches in Regalia. That's the best, yes. Peaches in Regalia is a really, really wonderful song. He moves with the times. The 60s stuff is very 60s, and there's a lot of fun stuff. The first album, honestly, is great. Freak Out is a lot of really fun, interesting stuff on there. Yeah. I love that he never sort of stopped and then say, oh, this is what I'm going to do. He was always trying to do something different. There's a lot of records that I don't understand, but I'd rather have an artist doing that rather than just stay the same thing over and over again. Yeah. For sure. You know, I haven't actually talked about this on the show. So when I graduated from college, I was going to, I'd gotten into a PhD program in composition and during that summer, like after I graduated from college, this was when I first started going down the Zappa like road. I was reading lots of Zappa books and there's the real Frank Zappa book, which is basically an autobiography sort of. And he talks in it very extensively about the life of a academic classical composer. 
basically he's like, here's the deal with becoming a classical composer. These days. <laughs> You're going to write a bunch of dots on a page and no one's going to hear them. Are you down for that? If you're not, maybe don't do it. Now, maybe this has changed. Maybe it wasn't true to begin with. Maybe he was just an asshole. I don't know. But he talked about trying to get, for example, the London Symphony Orchestra to play, and he has an album with them, to play his works. And he's like, this was one of the worst experiences of my life. They didn't want to rehearse. There were union rules. You know, they wouldn't give the time to it. That I mean, of course, like, I'm sure every composer ever has had this sort of issue. But on top of other personal stuff that was going on in my life, like a girlfriend who was not living in the town that I was about to move to for music school, (laughs) thinking through, okay, if I am lucky enough to become an academic composer, what kind of life is that? And will anybody ever hear the stuff I write? Like, am I okay with writing stuff that's just for me? Which, by the way, Zappa clearly was. Yes. You know, he has yeah. vaults and vaults and vaults of stuff that he was writing essentially just for him that probably no one will ever hear. Because he started writing a lot, as I said, for for the computer, for the Synclavier specifically. So this was very front of mind for me when I was about to walk down this academic composer path. And it definitely was a nail in the coffin of me doing that, reading these books, being like, this sounds terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And this is for fucking Frank Zappa, you know, who's like, if he can't do it and he hates this life and he wasn't an academic by any means. I mean, he was well studied and, you know, he knew a lot about modern classical music, but he was not an academic. It made being a contemporary classical composer seem straight up awful and was a formative thing for me not doing that. But which, by the way, I think for me, how can I complain about anything that's happening in my life right now? Like, it clearly worked out for the best, but reading what he wrote about that, he did not like the music industry. Well, yeah. And to be fair, the music industry is tough. Yeah. Classical music in particular, so much of it is playing the same shit over and over and over again. And it's hard shit. And, you know, you have to be very good to play it at a professional level. But a lot of orchestras and many of the good ones are changing this and have, you know, program directors and music directors that are trying to change this. It's a lot of the same shit over and over and over again. And being a contemporary classical musician for probably most of them is kind of just doing the same stuff for your entire career. And occasionally you get new stuff and that can be challenging. Yeah. You know, we, we were talking semi-recently about <laughs> Brian Fernieho, who's a contemporary composer who writes literally the hardest shit imaginable and actually took something like a 50-year gap or whatever off of writing for orchestra because he wrote some piece for them and they fucked it up so bad because it was so fucking hard. I mean, this thing is like insane. We talked about this a few months ago now that the idea of being the kind of person who has the brain who can write that complicated shit, which I don't think I have anyway, and then you put like years and years into writing this stuff and then you give it to whatever, 100 people you don't know And you're like, hey, play this. And they're like, I guess. And then fuck it up. (laughs) Oh, man, what a bummer. And that just seemed awful. Now, this guy is, to be fair, a very extreme case. But being a contemporary classic musician seems hard. Although there are a lot of young people who are doing really cool shit. And there's definitely a scene there. But I think if you're a kind of rep orchestra player, I don't know how fun 
that is? That seems very hard. I mean, you got to really love the instrument and all that sort of stuff to be able to enjoy. That's right. And I'm sure there's all sorts of weird politics and a million other things I don't know about. Was it the Vienna Philharmonic that only in pretty recent history let women play in it or something? Like, there's all sorts of horrible shit that goes on. But I'm sure there's lots of great stuff, too, that I'm not talking about. But look, my point is, this was enough to talk me out of the life of a classical composer, which, by the way, I'm not sure I had any chance at becoming anyway. Like, the step between me walking in the door of composition school and getting an academic job, that's a big path contingent on a million things. And I'm far from confident that I could have hacked it anyway. But certainly, it didn't take much more than Frank Zappa and a girlfriend that lived in San Diego to stop me from trying. <laughs> well, what about being a film composer? I thought about that for a while. It just seemed like a totally separate thing. That still seems fun. And I'm actually trying to do more stuff like that. So many of the Elfman and the John Williams and my, my favorite film scores are just with me forever. That's something I'm actively interested in. But again, look, I'm sure it's not easy to break into that and to make a living at it. It's not like you just start doing it and it works out. It's a hard path for sure. Brian, I have to be honest with you. Seeing you in a hat has been so upsetting to me for the past hour and 15 minutes. It just feels wrong. Oh, wait, hold on. You know what? <laughs> it feels unnatural. I'm going to make it better. Hold on. I'm going to make it better. Don't. All right. All right. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> I actually like this better <laughs> because now you look like the character that you play in Dream Daddy. Oh, yes, that's true. Spitting image of Quizmaster Quinn, folks. Actually, I'll that's do it great. too. Fuck it. Doing hats. You know what Audrey really hates is when I do this. <laughs> this is what she really hates is when I turn it to the side. I think everyone hates that. Oh, but it looks so cool. <laughs> everyone just right? liked that. <laughs> look at that. Wait, here we go. We'll just do that one. Hey, kids. Yeah. I'm going to put it on the, the most upsetting way, which is just to wear it. Is that a real deli or are you wearing like a parody hat? No, no. This is the Milburn Deli, a deli in Milburn, New Jersey, where I was recently. And it's a great deli, a real awesome Jersey deli in the little town of Milburn, which is an iconic deli and is like everything you'd want out of a classic Jersey deli. It rules. I'm not besmirching the hat. Or the deli. It's a great hat, just not on you. <laughs> All I know is that Rachel didn't force me to take it off. Just on your head, it is wrong. <laughs> well, I think this is a good time to move on to segments. So why don't we do that? All right. So yeah. our first segment is our pop culture recommendation segment, where you get to recommend a book, movie, video game, whatever you're feeling. It's called What's Poppin'? And the theme song goes here in post. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? All right. That's the What's Poppin' theme song. So, Leighton, what's poppin'? My What's Poppin' is a little game called Animal Crossing oh. Wild World. Whoa. Not New Horizons. I just passed the, like, 710-hour mark in New Horizons. I am not recommending Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm recommending Animal Crossing Wild World for the Nintendo DS. Wow. Because that was like the first video game that really meant a lot to me. And it was my first Animal Crossing game. 
And as I've been playing New Horizons, which, listen, I half want to get Allie to come on a mini again so we can rant for two hours about the Animal Crossing update, but... Is it bad? No, it's incredible. They added so much stuff. It's just, there's like a philosophical design difference between the beginning of Animal Crossing to what it is now. And not in a bad way, just in a different way. But here's why I recommend Wild World. Folks, if you like Animal Crossing, wouldn't it be cool if when you talk to your villagers, they actually had anything interesting to say to you? That's the game. Yeah, they're terrible. Everything's harder. Kids, back in my day, fruit didn't even stack. Wow, look at you. It's semi a miserable experience, but it's so worth it. The music is incredible. I've never really tried like emulators before, but I threw a little DS emulator on my phone and I've just been whipping out Wild World and playing it. It's just such a treat. So highly recommend, folks. It's fun. Everyone's so mean to you. This is my big thing. Everyone is so fucking mean to you all the time. And I really thought that I was looking at older Animal Crossing with like rose-colored glasses of like, oh, they verbally abuse you. Mm -hmm. No, they do. And it's awesome because they're so cute. And then they say horrible, cruel, insulting things to you. And it's funny. (laughs) And it makes me feel good. So that is what's popping. Does it feature the Cat Stevens slash Yusuf Islam song, Wild World, which is a great song? (sighs) I was about to like start berating you, but that is a great song. So I. It is a great song. It would be great if it did. You should hear the Mr. Big version. Yes, that is also a great version of it. Yeah. Speaking of Guardians of the Galaxy, they use a Cat Stevens song very effectively in Guardians 2, also, Father and Sons. Some of that early Cat Stevens stuff is really incredible. All right. David, what's popping? I recently had the wonderful opportunity to go on holiday since I cannot even remember when was the last time. And I saw this series called Sex Education. Oh, I've heard. Yeah. That yeah. is phenomenal. Yeah. It is unreal. Gillian Anderson is the greatest thing that ever stepped foot into the world. Yeah, she's great. Amen. Oh my God. It's fun. It's lighthearted. I love everything about it. And I cannot wait until the next season because I didn't even know there were three seasons already. Oh, what a treat. Yeah. Is it Netflix? Is that right? Netflix. Yes. We've come full circle, baby. Hell yeah. (laughs) Oh, and Laura Nero. I kind of went into her rabbit hole. It's a singer-songwriter from the late 60s from New York. Laura Nero is her name? Laura Nero. And then the last name is N-Y-R-O. Don't ask me why it's pronounced Nero. Mm Mm-hmm. But she started a lot of the female singer-songwriter, but she never kind of got a lot of the credit for it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Johnny Mitchell and everybody sort of got a lot of that. But she's phenomenal, an incredible pianist Mm. and a great voice. And she just makes you cry, which is the kind of music that I really like always. That's great. Wonderful. Brian, what is popping? What's popping for me is wearing hats, which they just always look good. And I mean, look at this. I have a hat head, and you have to admit it, right? (laughs) Your head was made to be covered up. (laughs) Uh, What's actually popping for me, so it's a book. I I finished it less than an hour before we started recording today. Is that an apple next to your book? Is this a what? Apple? Where? There's a round ball. Oh, it's your like D20 little That's my D20, my porcelain D20, yes. With the Zencaster crunching, it just looked like a cartoon apple. And I was about to roast you for having like a cartoon apple next to a book. I can see that. Like, oh, were you a professor? Well, the other thing is it's about two feet away. So you can't really see that's depth compression here. 
So here, look, I'll show you. Depth compression? Yeah, it's a term. Watch this. So the book was here. <laughs> See this? The over here. That's a distance of about two and a half feet. Cool. This is the kind of visual comedy you get when you pay for our Patreon, folks. Yeah. Only here right. can you see this kind of top tier uh, chicanery. It, it's called physical humor. Yeah. So, okay. The book I'm actually recommending today is by one of my favorite authors, David Mitchell. Uh, this is a book from last year called Utopia Avenue. So speaking of singer-songwriters in the 60s, this is about a British band, kind of a genre-defying act that starts in the late 60s, and it's about its rise and progression. So have either of you ever read David Mitchell stuff? I have not. His most famous book is probably Cloud Atlas. Oh. But he's written a bunch of others, too. So Cloud Atlas I love. It's a really wonderful book. His early books are sort of puzzle books in a sense that there's like interlocking narratives and you have to figure out kind of what's going on. That's part of the book. What do you think about the Cloud Atlas movie adaptation? You know what? Like many Wachowski films, it takes some big swings. That's a Wachowski film? (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah. I completely forgot. I don't know why I didn't know that at the time that I saw it, but that makes me like the movie more if I had simply accepted it on the Wachowski terms and not, oh, this is a normal movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to go into it with that Wachowski state of mind. But I saw the movie before I read the book, which probably also made me like the movie more. But I mean, Mm. certainly Tom Hanks should not be doing a Cockney accent. That was probably a, a mistake. I feel like I've willfully forgotten a lot of things from that film. Yeah, I'd have to watch the movie again. It's been a while. I haven't seen it since I read the book. But okay, here's the thing about David Mitchell. This guy has been doing something so wild that I think only really kind of came out, I don't know, within the last, I forget when Cloud Atlas was, maybe early 2000s, and maybe about 10-ish years ago. I don't want to say when people started to realize this, but he really like put the nail in the coffin. He's writing in a massive shared universe. All of his books, and it's all novels, take place in the same universe where there's kind of this overarching good versus evil strategy between a group of natural immortals and people that become immortal through dark magic. And all of his books have like sometimes major, sometimes minor characters that pop up from other novels. They're related to people that happen in other novels. And everything is taking place in this wild and kind of mystical shared universe. His novels span all these different genres. He has one that's a little like 100-page horror novel that takes place in England. He has Cloud Atlas, which runs the gamut from all these different periods from human history and then souls are kind of recurring or there's some sort of reincarnation thing. This takes place in England in the 60s. It's like a period piece about, you know, the British invasion a little later than that, but a British band from the late 60s. One I read recently, the thing that really said, okay, here are the stakes of this universe is it's basically a sci-fi novel. It's all over the map. And his writing is so compelling and interesting and fun. I love what he does. Every book is a weird little treat. 
He has a short coming of age novel. You know, he's just trying a bunch of different stuff. And it's so much fun to pick up on the, is this person, that person from the other book? And yeah, he, he has a really interesting one called The Thousand Autumns of Jakob de Zut, which takes place in Nagasaki in the 18th century, just as Japan is starting to open up to the world. And actually like the great, 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 or whatever grandson of that guy is in here. And one of the musicians in the band, it's fun, interesting stuff. And he's doing something that is kind of bold and some might call that self-indulgent, but I love it. I think he's a great writer and it's, it's worth reading. What is being bold, but being wildly self-indulgent? That's yeah, what it is. Exactly. The art that you like, you like it because the people making it were self-indulgent. Yep. And he's such a compelling writer. Like this book, 600 pages just flew by. You know, I think I read it in three or four days, which is fast for me. Leighton, this is probably a two-hour book for you, given your speed of reading. But, <laughs> like, I'm such a fan. Couldn't recommend it more highly, just in general. It's probably not going to be my favorite David Mitchell ever. you got to read Cloud Atlas, but it's great and, and a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah. Well, it's time for our final segment, which is three parts gratitude exercise and one part petty grousing, and it's called Peaches and Lemons. And the theme song is also added in post. Great, that was the theme song. We will each start with one lemon, which is a minor bummer or annoyance or whatever else. Does anybody have a lemon? Sure, I can go first. My lemon is, I think I look too good in hats. <laughs> it's kind of creating a problem in my marriage. You know, I can't go out in public when I'm wearing a hat. I get too much attention from people because I'm too attractive. Yeah, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my actual lemon is I got three vaccines on Monday. It was time for tetanus because you got to get it every 10 years. And I got my flu shot and I got pneumonia vaccine because my doctor recommended it. Wow. And the lemon is not getting the vaccines. I'm glad I got the vaccines, but they kicked my ass. I was out of commission for a few days this week in a way I haven't been for the while. COVID vaccine, no problems. Like didn't affect me at all. Arm hurt a little bit. That was it. And I took a COVID test this week. I was like, just to make sure, you know, I don't feel so great. I want to make sure it's not COVID. It was not fun. It was not a fun week of not being able to sleep on my arm and having Audrey be like, hey, daddy, honey, please stop. Stop hitting my arm. So that's my lemon. Uh, You were vaxxed and relaxed. Vaxxed, relaxed, especially in the back. My lemon, I think it's Yelp. (laughs) Why? I I hate Yelp. You hate Yelp. Okay. Go on. You know, as I told you guys, Earlier, we were in Portland on vacation and everything was great. And I would find this wonderful little record store. I would go there because it said it would be open. I would go there and it would be closed. It happened at least eight different times with restaurants. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's the owners or what, but in Portland, do not use Yelp. Huh. Because it fucking sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes we would walk because every time we would go to a city, I like to walk. Yes, absolutely. Always. Never take any public transportation or Ubers or it's kind of a great way to to see the city. And we would walk for 25 minutes to a place only to find that it was closed. I mean, do you think that some of those places closed like due to COVID world or just like not being updated? They were still in business. Okay. Just 
the hours were wrong. And you'd think they would check and update that. Yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah, it was shitty. Nothing big, but you know. But at least everyone on Yelp is a good writer and reviews things from a fair and impartial point of view. (laughs) Yeah, there's so much grace and generosity afforded to others on Yelp. It's a beautiful place if you want to see humans get along. And I saw a Yelp. I was looking up something recently on Yelp and there was like a brutal one star review. And then there was a comment underneath it by the owner of the restaurant who was like, okay, the person who wrote this review had ordered food from a different restaurant and came to us to pick it up and was mad that we wouldn't give it to her. Wow. So we tried to like explain to her that, you know, we're a vegan restaurant. We don't serve burgers. And when we wouldn't give her her burger, she savaged us on, on here. And we've been trying to get this thing taken down, but we can't. I thought it was such a funny oh. thing. I love seeing that happen because otherwise it's just a bunch of depressing, like one-sided customer complaining. And it's like, yeah, but was this you? Was this on you this time? No, the fact that you're coming here to bitch about it. My other favorite genre of Yelp is like a restaurant that just opens. And then there's like four or five star reviews who are clearly from family and friends. (laughs) You're like, you know a little bit too much about this place. Yeah. It's like, Jesus Christ, it was chicken tenders, Marie. Like, (laughs) you can get five stars to a chicken tender? Anyway, my lemon is a little bit more serious. It's that Brian's wearing a hat. What can I say? I'm a hat guy now. I wear hats. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, get used to it. Look. Yeah. Look at that smooth brim. (laughs) (laughs) That's my move. Yeah. You're well known for it. I call that a, a slide. And you have to make that exact face when you do it. God. My hat face. <laughs> it's a face I make when I wear hats. Should I switch to fedoras? Is that the real question? That's a yes. Okay, great. <laughs> I have to put up with so much on this show. Mm-hmm. I just hope everyone here understands that. Brian, you look so particularly Grinch-like today. I don't know if it's the hat or if it's just like your webcam or your general besides of it. What? I'm I'm really not doing anything. I mean, my hat did go grow three sizes today. I think about like the brim of a baseball cap really accentuates your fucking everything. Mm. Anyway, I forgot to write a lemon, so it's still Brian's head. <laughs> I love it. Great. All right. Peaches. Yeah. Hold on. That's my line. Peaches. Okay. Sorry. Because I'm wearing a hat, I got kind of disoriented. I feel a sense of power, <laughs> like I'm really in control. It's just kind of a hat guy thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's the headphones in the hat. It feels like I'm... <laughs> Stop making the face. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> This is just my face now. Who has peaches? Somebody please, for the love of God. I'm going to warn you in advance. They all involve hats. <laughs> okay. No, I'm happy to tell my peaches. Peach number one, we got a piano. We got a real live acoustic piano. And I've been meaning to do it for a while because we wanted to start Audrey on lessons, which, look, obviously digital piano is fine. But I do feel like if it's within your budget, it's better to learn on an acoustic piano, on an actual percussion instrument, if you can. It is not within everybody's ability, but for Audrey, I wanted her to learn on a real one. 
Did you just take everything out of your living room and shove a baby grand in there? Oh, God. We talked briefly. I was like, should we get rid of the dining room table and put a grand piano in here? <laughs> someday, someday I will own a grand piano. Brian, that dining room table is like a load-bearing table in your yeah, home. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's a really distinctive feature. Yes, it would be dope to put a piano there. What we did is we put it upright, like, next to it, basically. Okay. It's like right as you come in the front door on the right. Oh, that's perfect, because then you get the fireplace in there, too. Yep. Oh, amazing. Went to a piano store and tried a bunch and picked out a piano. By the way, my lemon should have been playing piano in a piano store, which is maybe the worst experience I've ever had, because there's, like, people watching you, and it's like, what are you supposed to be playing right now? And there's no supposed to, but you still feel like the pressure's fucking on. Because there's also, if there's any place to go to be surrounded, guaranteed by professional pianists, it's a piano store. So, you know, you get the sense that the salespeople are, are judging you, but they're not really supposed to be. But they definitely know that you're not a great piano. Oh, it was, it was so embarrassing and mortifying to be playing piano in this piano store. Playing piano in a piano store is like the dark souls of playing guitar in Guitar Center. I imagine. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. You know what? What you get is you don't get middle-aged guys shredding on guitar or on piano. You get like very old people coming in and like some old, you know, Russian lady who just shows up and starts crushing some Chopin or something. You're like, I would what sit the around fuck? and wait for that. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, or you get people showing up with kids. All right. So that's that's my first peach. Second peach is Audrey lost a top front tooth this week, and now she's lisping, and it fucking rules. <laughs> like, she asked for something the other day, Mommy, could I watch PJ Masks? And I was like, what did you say? <laughs> Nothing. I didn't say anything. What? <laughs> ah, daddy. Oh. And there's a chance, there's a significant chance, because the other one's a little wiggly too, she might have both top teeth out by Christmas, in which case <gasps> the dream would be true and she would be a full-on, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth, <laughs> living kid. If that happens, you have to do a little ditty with her. Like, oh, yeah. you got to play the piano. That would be awesome. It's so cute. I love it very much. My final peach is I went to a revolving sushi bar, like a conveyor belt sushi. Oh, did you go to Kura? Thing for lunch. I did go to Kura and it was great. Which one, Lil Tokes or uh, the Galleria? An undisclosed location. The Galleria. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> our go-to is the Sautel one. But I haven't been in, you know, two years. And it was great to be back. It is just as conveyor belty as it was as the last time I was there, you know, in whatever, early 2020 or something. Did Audrey love it? Sorry, I go with grown adults to Revolving Sushi and they're like, you get a toy? Oh, yeah. Well, so it was just me and Rachel today because Audrey's in school. But yeah, she does love this place. And we haven't been back since COVID. Although, did I say this before? She got her first shot too, which is wow. great. So she is now half vaccinated. So we'll be bringing her back pretty soon. And uh, those are my peaches. I have three really fast ones. Great. My first one, DS emulator. Not only am I playing Animal Crossing Wild World, I'm playing Sims 2 for the Nintendo DS, which was like my favorite game as a kid that I Whoa. never see anybody talk about. That game rules. I mean, it's terrible. Where's the DS emulator? What do you play it on? I have one on my computer that I forget what it's called. It's like when you search DS emulator, it's the first thing that comes up. And then the one on my phone is like 
drastic or something like that. But Sims 2, it is such a strange Sims game because it's really not very Simsy. You're like the manager of a hotel in Strange Town. And the game always scared the shit out of me as a kid because there are aliens and there will be like sudden alien invasions. And if you time travel, which I was doing for Animal Crossing Wild World, like a filthy little cheat, you will get more aliens. And also the soundtrack for the game is so fucking great, specifically the track that happens when the aliens show up. I'm going to write this down. Sims 2 Aliens music. Yeah, please, please listen to it because it's so cool. And all the comments are people being like, when I was a kid and I played this, I shit my pants. And it's like, yes, yeah. (laughs) Hearing like the opening notes of it, I was like, oh my God, this shit made me slap my DS shut so many times. (laughs) But the guy who did all the music like remastered everything and put them all up on his YouTube and like soundtrack's great. Peach number two. I got one of those big fat glass bottles of like chocolate milk that's thick as a milkshake and it's sitting in my fridge getting real cold. And the Mm. moment this is over, I'm chugging that bad boy. Wow. And then I'm going to feel terrible. And then I'm going to have nightmares. Yep. Because I love a chocolate milk nightmare. Yeah. Chocolate (laughs) milk. It's great because it's milk, but it's actually terrible for you. I was thinking I really, really wanted it before we started recording this. And I was like, man, my voice is terrible enough already. Let me just throw chocolate milk down my throat as we talk for two hours. Classic Anchorman line, right? Milk was a bad choice. (laughs) And then my third peach is that I was having a little um, shit fit by myself the other day and I was having a bad time. And then I got into my bed and then maybe came up and she knew I was having a shit fit. And she came up and she came up right here and she put her head on my shoulder and I held my dog, made me feel better. And it was great. So those are my three peaches. Great. David? First one I'll say is Portland. Portland is amazing. The people are incredible. Everything about that city I freaking loved. All the stores, you have a record store every 10 minutes you walk, the coffee. It's so full of art and people are just so nice that I would live there in a heartbeat. We had a great time. We had amazing food. I mean, even with Yelp, we managed to find some places that were open. So uh, it was very, very cool. That's my first one. That's great. The second one is I'm finally going to see my mom again after COVID, which is great. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. She's visiting with my two nephews and my sister, and uh, we're very, very happy. She lives in Venezuela? She lives in Houston. But I haven't seen her in two years. Wow. And the third one is we recently did a Frank Sinatra Christmas video for... Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask you about this. Yeah. Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas that never had a video before and they asked us to do it. And it went viral in South America, believe it or not. Wow. Which makes me really happy because it's a very personal story. It's a story of uh, Christmas from the point of view of an immigrant which is not something that you see on TV every day. And it really struck a nerve, like anything we've ever done, actually. It's been amazing. It's been beautiful to see people connecting with the story and sort of sharing what it means to kind of be on your own and start to build everything from nothing and and missing everything about your past and your family and, and your friends. And it's heartbreaking at the same time because there's people who haven't been able to see their families in 10 years, in Venezuela in particular. Yeah. So everybody has cried with the video. We've been crying reading the comments. <laughs> but it's been absolutely beautiful, you know. It's kind of a dream come true. Whenever you want to tell a story, 
this sort of stuff obviously doesn't happen every day. So I take every inch and enjoy every single second of it because it was fantastic. That's amazing. And I'm surprised that they allowed us to tell this kind of story. So kudos to the Sinatra family and Universal, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, it's well-deserved, dude. The stuff you guys do is just incredible. I mean, I'm such a fan of yours. Not only just the sheer talent that's on display, but the range of stuff you guys try to do is so impressive. And you're constantly surprising in all the best ways. Thank you. No, that means the world. Likewise, man. I feel the same way with you guys. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. What a wonderful note to end on. Yeah. I also (laughs) do want to point out real quick that I'm wearing a hat today. I don't know if we've talked about it. And it's a, it's a look now. <laughs> I love that I'm sitting in the dark now because it makes me feel like I'm an unfriended and you're the demon who friended me on Facebook. <laughs> yes. There must be like a cool hat demon, right? A hundred percent. I actually want to ask Leighton a question. What's up? Look, I had VHS when I was a kid. I ended up hating VHS, but you love it, right? Yeah. And this is obviously the old man asking the question, obviously, but tell me why you love VHS so much. I love the art of the little boxes. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely adore that. But why do you love to watch movies in VHS? I mean, I treat my VHS as like special treats because they're all going to die someday and be unusable. (laughs) And for me, it's such a like heavy nostalgia thing and with sort of coming all the way back around to streaming like streaming everything is so instantly accessible and with VHS it's like okay I have my few I'm going to sit and make a point of watching it and I'm going to feel the fuzz on the screen of the CRT and I'm going to sit on the floor with my dog and like I don't know it's fun and I love having the art like it makes me glad to see it on my shelf I just enjoy it that's a great answer, actually. I, I, I was just <laughs> curious because I've seen that there's so much resurgence of the VHS. They're even selling the few Blu-rays and DVDs that are still on sale. There are some that are actually now coming VHS boxes. Yeah. yeah. It's totally like a novelty thing that I think is super cool that places are like, yeah, we're going to do a boutique VHS that you're probably not even going to watch. Ha ha, gotcha. <laughs> if anybody wants to hire me to design a VHS for your movie, please do it. That's my dream. <laughs> All right. Anyway, where, David, can people find, like, what specifically do you want to plug? Our socials are Fantunes at Twitter and Instagram. We just released a children's book called Learn to Count 1234 with Johnny Ramone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow, I love that. So we worked with Linda Ramon, which she's been amazing to work with. She runs the Johnny Ramon Army and obviously the estate. And it's been super cool to kind of do this little book that has a little piece of Johnny Ramon in there to inspire kids to kind of get into punk rock. So <laughs> that's our latest book. And I would love if people see the, the Frank Sinatra video that we did in, in his channel. It's uh, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. I think even if you are not into... Christmas music, I think the story will resonate if somebody in your life has gone or if you leave your place to find your dreams. That's beautiful. Well, what a wonderful time. Thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you. Brian, thank you for imminently logging off so I no longer have to see your mug with a hat on top of it. You know what? No, let me take a picture (laughs) right now. Just hold on. Next time you don't feel so great, Layden. Here, let me pose for this right now. I'm going to send this to you. 
right now. Here you go. And the next time you don't feel so good, you don't have to rely on your dog. You can just <laughs> take that picture of me. I made sure to shoot it in 12K so I can have it blown up to a blanket also. <laughs> All right. Well, there are tears in my eyes, folks. Have yourselves a Merry Little Christmas at home <laughs> this November. Come a lot. All right. That's the end of the podcast. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> Late Night is produced by Brian Wett, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore night, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com.